Depot went through a breach. Yes, not, we not did. unlike Equifax, but it cost you less in the yeah. end. We had a board meeting in August. At that board meeting, we spent a half a day with our audit committee going through cybersecurity. Two and a half weeks later, so the day after uh, Labor Day, there was some activity that seemed to be associated with Home Depot. We disclosed right off the bat. We were very focused on every communication was about the customer and how this impacted the customer and what the customer needed to do. And as a result, there are probably other reasons the world getting more used to breaches and things like that, but we had no discernible hit on sales. I mean, there were lots of decisions and lots of difficulties, and we learned a lot about how these events happen. Welcome to episode 273 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, and the views we're expressing here today, as always, are uh, not the views of any institution with which we are affiliated, even remotely, or frankly, any other human being uh, whom we know or uh, have ever been associated with. Today, I'm going to uh, have a very personal interview because it's with uh, my former co-clerk, uh, who came to town because uh, Justice Stevens' funeral was today and tomorrow. Uh, and uh, uh, we had clerked uh, for Justice Stevens. Uh, Frank Blake uh, went on to become the CEO of uh, Home Depot uh, and is the host of his own podcast called Crazy Good Turns. And we'll be talking a little bit about that and about how technology impacts charity. For the News Roundup, we've got Matthew Hyman, Senior Fellow from the National Security Institute, Gus Hurwitz from the University of Nebraska Law School, uh, Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley uh, uh, Computer Science uh, uh, Department, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and provocateur for today. Google, what a bad week Google had. First, Peter Thiel says they're borderline treasonous. And not surprisingly, the president picks that up. Uh, uh, Dick Clark, who was on this program a couple of uh, weeks ago, uh, says, yeah, I think they're uh, working with China on artificial intelligence and not with the United States. That uh, that should be criticized. Um, uh, Matthew, uh, is this just, you know, kind of a bunch of sound and fury? The, the, the president's tweet was of a tweet we've now come to recognize where he seems to say, yeah, Treason. Yeah, this is this bad. This is bad. And then he says, we're going to look into it, which is kind of his way of saying, if there's somebody out there in my administration who wants to do something about it, you've got a little bit of backing from me. But that's about all it's really saying. Yes, I agree. And it's I think it's interesting how the story moved through the week. So it began with Peter Thiel, who's obviously, you know, a Silicon Valley luminary and also one of the few people in Silicon Valley that is a very outspoken supporter of Trump. And so it begins with perhaps a natural reaction of, well, this is one Trump supporter uh, sort of getting the president's attention. The president says, yeah, Peter Thiel knows everything about Silicon Valley. He's right. But then when Dick Clark comes out and says, yeah, there is something to this, I think it becomes a little bit more of an intriguing story because Dick Clark is not an obvious partisan for anyone. He's worked for Democrat and Republican administrations. And I, I, I once called him a partisan in the restaurant sense. <laughs> Richard Clark, party of one. Yeah, that's probably the best way to describe him in terms of partisanship. But so, you know, I think there is something to it. I think if there's an enterprising person at commerce or justice or perhaps even treasury wants to dig in, as you said, Stuart, they've got a bit of a hunting license at the moment. And I, I do think Google has been placed itself in this odd position of refusing to work with the Pentagon. And then you know, they, what they're doing with the Chinese, to be fair, yeah. is they are sponsoring a lot of AI research exactly. by Chinese professors, and the professors, everyone believes, are working with or will be required to work with the Chinese government if the time comes. Exactly. And the other thing is, according to one story, there's an AI center they've opened in Shanghai. Now, according to the story, it's really to focus on education and machine learning, and the critics of Google, including Peter Thiel, would quickly say, well, there, you can't draw a straight line between what might be for the good of civil society in China and what might ultimately support the military industrial complex in China. So that's the basis of the criticism. And, you know, so far, Google is saying we're not in business with the Chinese military. 
Uh, we're not obviously not doing business with the Pentagon. Yeah, but, but they, 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 they deserve to be beaten up about uh, uh, this. They basically treated their engineers as the only public that mattered to them. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and they've certainly moved in the direction of their employees. But they, you know, they, and, and they don't do themselves any favors when, uh, you know, their spokespeople who testified uh, in front of the House last week said, you know, we don't have any plans right now. You know, there was never an absolute. They never we walked will... away from their dragonfly exactly. search program that was meant to provide uh, bolderized searches for Chinese uh, um, uh, residents. Yeah, exactly. A, a much thinner version of. You know, their search function here in the U.S., which would be tailored to the insecurity and paranoia of the Chinese regime. So uh, they uh, it, it was just a bad week. Right. The the the, uh, yeah. the criticism of them for censoring so, uh, uh, conservatives com- comes up again. Questions whether uh, 230 uh, exemption ought to be sustained, whether the FTC should investigate them. Uh, all of those questions are floating around. Uh, uh, the one thing that I thought was interesting, the thing I thought most interesting from the testimony in front of uh, Cruz and others was that uh, they had on a uh, – standard liberal psychologist uh, who said, even though I voted for and supported Hillary Clinton, I think it's shocking because I believe that uh, the biased search results during the campaign delivered a minimum of 2.6 million votes to Hillary Clinton. His his name is uh, Robert Epstein, if I remember right. I'm going to dig into that and see if those are credible numbers, but uh, they're certainly staggering numbers. They are staggering numbers. And and I think the other thing that this Google story is another example of is this space that we now find ourselves in with companies that do business in China uh, getting caught up into the it used to just be about China's a huge market. We got to get there to make money. Now it's um, China's a huge market, but we got to worry about tariffs. We've got to worry about national security. And as we've talked about on the podcast before, all these companies now pulling out of China, canceling projects in China. Um, I think this is another sort of link in that chain of the economic decoupling that's going on between the U.S. and China. And I think Google, like most big companies that are in China, is trying to figure out how do they walk that line? Do they pull out? Do they give up? And I think I don't think it's an easy answer. So there's a really interesting story that just came out. I think the L.A. Times uh, I had it about how game companies in the U.S. are having to uh, dance to the Chinese tune. You know, China has become very focused on the possibility that kids are being addicted uh, uh, to games which are using real addictive techniques, which is perfectly plausible. And and uh, the Chinese government solution is no one under 18 should be allowed to play games for more than two hours. And so they have required anybody who sells game uh, software to include in it a mechanism for keeping track of how long each individual Chinese national plays the game. And uh, that was characterized by the LA Times as surveillance and uh, uh, questions were raised. Uh, Frankly, that strikes me as something you could have imagined the FTC requiring too. So people are going to get faced with this choice over and over again, and it's going to get closer and closer to lines that they think they won't cross, and then the line they won't cross gets a little further away. Yeah, I agree, and it also, when I hear about any centralized government trying to limit the amount of time teenagers have access to anything, I, you know, I sort Good of wish luck. them well because I imagine those young teenagers will figure out how to get around those time limits as fast as the bureaucrats can print the laws. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably right, and maybe this will. Spur an entire generation of uh, uh, fake identities uh, in China. Gus, as her parting shot, uh, Commissioner Vestager uh, uh, said she was uh, opening an investigation on Amazon and its uh, uh, sales uh, of third-party uh, products. Uh, how seriously should Amazon be taking that? So I am simply shocked, just shocked, that uh, the commissioner would uh, take action or open an investigation against the American tech industry. Uh, it's uh, uh, 
a little alarming to know that she had to wait till her last day in office, basically, to open an investigation. I joke, of course, uh, since this has been uh, the hallmark of uh, her, her time uh, in that office uh, investigating um, American tech companies. The European Union's going to European Union when it comes to tech and antitrust. Uh, Amazon should be uh, moderately concerned about this because uh, the European Union uh, has demonstrated that they are untethered from traditional antitrust uh, principles, competition law uh, concepts. Um, what Amazon is accused of doing is competing. Uh, what they're accused of doing is uh, taking products that uh, can be easily commodified and commodifying them and selling them at low cost to consumers. Uh, this is beneficial to consumers. Uh, it is harmful to some of Amazon's competitors, those who aren't availing themselves of intellectual property uh, protections or operating in industries that don't have uh, strong IP norms, um, and uh, competitors who elect to uh, uh, go to the Amazon marketplace to sell that seems uh, to be the, the, the marketplace thing seems to be the principal focus here the idea that uh, Amazon can't be trusted to sell its own products and its competitors products and that uh, it's inevitably going to squeeze those third-party sellers many of whom I'm sure are European because they come from all over the world and uh, that's not an implausible concern uh, when you're running a platform and also selling on that platform for your own uh, uh, account, um, there are uh, conflicts of interest, aren't there? The same conflicts of interest that there are uh, when you have any store brand products, when you're walking down the supermarket uh, aisle and there are white label products or uh, you have th uh, Whole Foods 365 uh, brand of cereal right next to the other brand names of cereal, uh, it, it's the same thing. Okay. Um, so it's, it, it, is, and if we were scared of Safeway, we'd be making that argument, but we aren't. Right. And the, there are, amazingly enough on the Internet, other platforms that you can go to, uh, Etsy. If you're uh, making these uh, uh, products, if you're a small uh, uh, company, there are platforms that you can get distribution on, that you can sell your products on. You are uh, uh, cutting a deal with Amazon when you're using their marketplace in exchange for their scale and uh, uh, their uh, mechanisms. Uh, if there is, there are concerns here. I uh, uh, fully uh, recognize and uh, accept that there are concerns here. My view is that those concerns are better laid at the feet of intellectual property and similar protection. Um, if uh, what Amazon is doing is infringing on trademarks, a company's branding, then you've got trademark law there. If what you have uh, is Amazon saying, hey, people like buying this product from merchant X, Y, or Z, we are going to position our knockoff of that market so that people will be confused and buy from us instead of merchant X, Y, or Z. Well, didn't they, didn't, didn't they, also, announce a, didn't they also announce a program in which they said, yes, go ahead and build your trademark uh, and your brand as long as we can buy it for $10,000 uh, whenever we want. Uh, so mm -hmm. there, is a, there is a program there that allows them to kind of march in and uh, uh, take over. Now, you have to agree to that at some point, uh, but uh, that does suggest that IP may not be a complete protection for, for some of these guys. Right, but that, that's not an, uh, an abuse of uh, market power. Uh, that's not a competition concern. And if anything, the biggest concern we have here is that uh, what Amazon is doing is going to deter merchants from bringing new products to market because they worry that Amazon is going to effectively rip them off. If Amazon is saying up front, hey, here's a bounty, we promise you $10,000 of free money if you bring something that's so successful to market that we want to replicate it, well, that might actually induce more innovation. So there's a countervailing innovation effect uh, that needs to be brought into the analysis, which I am certain that the European Union uh, and uh, DG Comp will thoroughly be considering in uh, uh, their internal deliberations of how many billions of dollars to find Amazon. Yeah, not. Uh, okay. Um, so I, I can't resist this story because it makes um, uh, Julian Assange look like such a dope, uh, you know, kind of an evil dope. Uh, CNN had a, a remarkable story using the uh, uh, security 
logs from the Ecuadorian embassy in which uh, apparently in, in addition to taking over the electronics uh, and uh, having the ability to say certain people should be admitted without going through any security, taking their names off after they'd been admitted uh, and then getting in fistfights with the guards and responding just like a hardened criminal by uh, uh, spreading feces on the wall. I, uh, Nick, uh, I know you, know you 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 haven't really been a Julian's biggest fan. Is this everything <laughs> you imagined? <laughs> what I find remarkable is how tolerant the Ecuadorians were and that Julian Assange is basically the walking, talking example of the sunk cost fallacy. So if he had just said, okay, extradite me to Sweden, he'd be out and living probably in Cuba by now. And if the Ecuadorians said, oh my God, this house guest was a mistake, they would have gotten rid of him a decade or uh, five years ago. And it's just remarkable how much bad behavior he did, including it looks like running a information operation targeted at the U.S. election in from the middle of the Ecuadorian embassy, which is not a good way to make friends with the Ecuadorians because, well, they probably have a different motive on the information ops. Yeah, I, 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 I get the impression that he basically told uh, one ambassador after another, I can get you fired if you screw with me because uh, I am close to the president. And uh, uh, that was apparently enough to allow him to get away with this stuff. But yeah, he, he, he's, he's a prisoner in his head, and that has led him to act like an inmate uh, um, in the most uh, grotesque ways. FTC, uh, uh, speaking, you know, bad week for Google. We forgot this one, Gus. Um, uh, announcement that FTC is working on a settlement. It sounds like the same sort of settlement that uh, they did with Facebook. Uh, that is to say, they're going to extract some money, uh, and uh, uh, the three Republican commissioners are okay with it, and the Dems are dissenting. No one knows why, but presumably they want more structural relief. Uh, possibly uh, the big question mark with this settlement, uh, so that this relates to um, FTC collection and use of uh, uh, information about children under COPPA. Um, the uh, big question that we have uh, is how much money this settlement is going to be for. Uh, the press coverage that I've seen so far is using uh, terms like many millions of dollars. So this is a much smaller fine than uh, obviously the $5 billion uh, uh, FTC uh, Facebook fine. But uh, many millions of dollars could mean many things. Uh, the previous largest fine um, for a COPPA violation the FTC issued to Musical.ly uh, uh, this past year was $5.7 million. Is this going to be a fine on the order of several million dollars or many million dollars is, uh, I think, the, the big question. My own expectation is this is going to be a pretty small fine. The problem is, is, is in part that COPPA really does require you to market to children. And so if you're smart, you make sure that your marketing can't be viewed as marketing to children. Uh, and uh, then the fact that children come to find your your channel as long as you don't encourage it you're the FTC is going to have trouble tagging you with serious liability yeah there, there's also a actual knowledge uh, threshold um, it's uh, you need to respond to actual knowledge and uh, stuff like that but yeah exactly Acaba has been designed to prohibit companies from deliberately seeking out uh, children um, and of course this is the other thing going on in uh, the background of this case uh, the FTC has uh, recently released a request for public comment uh, a series of 20 some questions about uh, COPPA uh, gearing up to issue a uh, notice of proposed rulemaking for updates and modifications to uh, uh, how we should update the FTC's rules for COPPA uh, in, event, in light of uh, rapid technological change is uh, the phrase that the, the chairman used. Uh, there might be some changes around the margin. 
but the FTC probably is pretty limited in what they're able to do because the statutory language itself uh, dictates most of what the rules are. Uh, but the, the dynamics here, this takes us back uh, in many ways to the earlier discussion about Chinese video games. Kappa, uh, children on the internet, how we design websites to be child safe, but also uh, uh, suitable for an adult audience. Uh, that's a fundamentally hard question. If you go back to the uh, uh, Communications Decency Act uh, section, the uh, 230s uh, sister section of 227, which was struck down by the Supreme Court, that would have required websites uh, to uh, basically be uh, porn free. Um, it, it prohibited websites from hosting or delivering uh, uh, indecent content to children. Um, and the Supreme Court said, hey, no, this clearly violates uh, the First Amendment. Um, we are not going to require adult-oriented uh, uh, institutions, technologies, adults just meaning non-children, not indecent content uh, exclusive uh, in order to be uh, child safe, in order to be legal. Um, we don't have a First Amendment issue necessarily in the privacy realm, in the uh, YouTube realm. Um, so it's hard for us to understand how the FTC or Congress will steer a path um, saying, hey, websites need to be designed in a way that uh, uh, respects children's privacy, but also allows them, and this is how uh, the privacy advocates out there will frame this, uh, to uh, uh, screw over adults on their privacy with consent or not. Uh, the cons basic question here is, how do you have a Facebook business model? How do you have an advertising business model in an environment if we're going to require websites not to collect information about children when the websites can't tell who is a child online? I think that's the least of their worries. They know so much already, and the limitations on collecting that data are so modest. I, I, I think that yeah, there is there's an actual notice problem, uh, a knowledge problem that's probably pretty deep. Because if they wanted to figure out who was a kid, they probably could do it pretty easily. Um, so, last of our, I think last of our um, Silicon Valley moral dilemmas uh, is the cert wars. The Government of Kazakhstan has said, uh, you know, in order to make sure that people don't go to the wrong places on the Internet, uh, we're going to make them all install a government certificate so that we can uh, break every single encrypted communication to the outside world or the inside world, for that matter, uh, by launching a man in the middle attack. Um, Nick, uh, do you think this will actually work for the Kazakh government? And what do you think the... Uh, uh, the big browser makers are going to do with this challenge? Well, I don't think it's going to work for the Kazakh government because, among other things, the rationale is false. You can always tell the sites that people are going to. This only allows them to actually observe the content within sites. So it allows them to do fine-grained censorship rather than just, say, coarse-grained censorship. Fair enough. So, so that's the what they want to do, obviously. Uh, I, are they going to be able to do it? I don't think so for two reasons. First of all, the NSA thanks them for this effort because it's going to make it much easier for the NSA as well, because now you just compromise the Kazakh man in the middle box. But the browsers are going to reject this. The ability to put in your own certificate is designed for limited environments like businesses and stuff like that. Sure. Corporate, and, corporate, corporate security functions. Yeah, corporate security function. I will bet that the browser vendors blacklist this certificate and actually just say, nope, sorry, we're not accepting it. Wow, okay. So uh, uh, Microsoft, Google, and uh, Mozilla go to war with Kazakhstan. They got a lot of oil in Kazakhstan. Uh, this could be a fairer <laughs> fight than you think. All right. Uh, uh, quick uh, uh, items that, as, as we try to finish up on time for our interview. Uh, Equifax, $650 million settlement. Uh, that kind of hurts. Uh, uh, Gus, any, any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it kind of doesn't hurt. Um, the remarkable thing about it, uh, we talk endlessly about what's the actual value of a record in a data breach. 143 million uh, individuals breached several records each. Uh, a lot of uh, generally what we consider among the highest value uh, records. Um, and the fine is about $4 per person, not even per record. Uh, so if you look at the um, uh, statistical analyses of what are the actual harms uh, in a data breach, this is going to push those numbers way down. 
a lot of it is not actually a fine, just the anticipated cost of credit monitoring that Equifax has to provide. Oh, oh wait, the they're a provider yeah. credit monitoring. <laughs> so this is this is it depends in part on how much they charge people for the uh, 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 the credit monitoring they're doing for them. Uh, that's well, how much they charge their other division. Yeah. Okay, that is very sad. Uh, all right, uh, uh, Nick, um, uh, this is not a surprise, I guess. Uh, uh, Hal Martin got nine years for uh, uh, being the pack rat of uh, every classified uh, attack tool that uh, NSA had, apparently. Uh, um, any Anything new in that, uh, or is this just the end of that sad story where we will never really know how much he gave away and how much somebody else gave away. I think at this point we can assume he didn't actually give it away because they wouldn't have settled for the pack rat charge if he had actually distributed. So this, is, this, is, think, this is just a tragedy uh, all around. Yeah. I do think we will never know how he got away with being such a big pack rat, but we will – just editorially, I think this sentence is reasonable, but it was what David Petraeus who kept uh, kept classified notebooks at home and showed them to his mistress, um, and he got off with probation. So, I think there's a double standard in this space. Well, maybe uh, you know he showed it to his mistress with a clearance as well, but uh, uh, and uh, uh, was pretty careful about uh, uh, disclosure. And they were his events, uh, but yeah, I, I I agree. There is some disparity there. Uh, and if he'd had it in digital form on his computer, he probably would have been tagged harder uh, uh, as uh, the director of central intelligence, uh, uh, the Deutsch, was tagged for using a computer that uh, he kept classified files on and also porn. So uh, all, my guess is that uh, um, this this reflects the extraordinary risk that uh, Hal Martin ran with all that stuff. Uh, last thing, uh, the Russians have joined everybody else uh, in the barrel. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, what happened to the FSB and its contractors? Well, it wasn't the FSB. It was one of their contractors got hacked and all their stuff dumped. So they got the Perceptix treatment, but without the ransom. Kind of interesting tools, social media monitoring, what looks to be an experiment with Tor de-anonymization, um, stuff like that. And it's just kind of embarrassing. But in terms of the tools, social media monitoring, I'm surprised these guys aren't pitching to the FBI, which is actually looking for one. <laughs> well, maybe they'll have to because uh, they may uh, they may themselves be debarred like Perceptix mm. is apparently going to. Although I suspect if you screw up a contract for a Russian intelligence, uh, debarment is, is the mm. least of the things you have to worry about. Uh, okay, that concludes our uh, uh, news roundup. So let's turn to our interview. Uh, uh, this interview guest is somebody I've known longer than anybody. I've interviewed uh, uh, longer than uh, two of my three children. That is a scary thought. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's Frank Blake, uh, who is uh, uh, former uh, Stevens clerk uh, in town uh, because we are going to uh, Justice Stevens' uh, memorial service and funeral. And uh, I took advantage of that fact. I'd been planning to do this anyway because uh, in addition to uh, being my co-clerk, he's my co-podcaster. Uh, 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 Frank has a podcast that I really enjoy called Crazy Good Turns. Uh, and uh, uh, he um, uh, uses that as a platform to talk about people who have done remarkable things for other people to the point of it being a little crazy. Uh, and uh, so I want to talk to him about the use of technology in uh, um, uh, charity uh, and also uh, about his career a little. Uh, uh, Frank, you were um, – you transcended the law early. Uh, what? I, I was sure you were going to end up as uh, secretary of something. You ended up as deputy secretary at Energy. Yeah. Uh, was that in uh, – Bush son. Bush so 43. 43. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my, my memory of what you said about that uh, when I was talking to you is you said, you know, I'm the deputy secretary, the number two official. I'm a lot like an 
ant on a log that's floating downstream. (laughs) And I can run around and do all kinds of stuff, but that log is going where that log is going. Exactly right. So uh, is that sort of the swan song for your enthusiasm for government? That did it. Yeah. That that absolutely did it. So I had been in government before. I worked for George Bush dad uh, when he was vice president. And then I was general counsel at EPA for a few years. And in between that and being deputy secretary of energy, I worked at GE for 10 years. And so when I got to DOE, I had this memory of government and then the reality of that ant on the log. And probably the one thing that that Uh, description doesn't capture is the stream appears to be going fast, but it's not going anywhere. So it's the water is rushing by and then you look and the landscape's the same. So all of these drills, and that was in the context of 9-11. So there was a Department of Energy because, as you know, doesn't has nothing to do with energy. It does nuclear energy, nuclear weapons. Because of the risk around nuclear weapons, there was actually a period of time when something uh, was happening, something was happening. There was like three to four weeks where people were cooperating yes. uh, across the aisles, and there was a feeling of, "Gosh, this this can work as we work together." And then after a month, that dissipated, and it was back to the same old, same old. And I didn't last a year. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I will say. DOE is famous for having a secretary and a little office of the secretary and then components that don't listen to him at all. No, no. And wildly different components from deep science. I mean, some of the great physicists who, you know, God bless them, they had to explain things to me that I was just (laughs) so deeply clueless about to uh, uh, it actually runs the Bonneville Power Authority um, and then to, you know, miscellaneous uh, it's it's an odd i once got a bag. briefing from a physicist like that and afterwards i thanked him i said you know until i met you i did not realize there was an entire profession that was on average more arrogant than lawyers <laughs> <laughs> well the i'll just give one my one snapshot on that is the world's largest computer is in sandia and it simulates since we're not allowed to test nuclear weapons it simulates mm-hmm. nuclear weapon testing and it's multiple teraflops whatever the right term is and the scientist is explaining it all to me and they needed more money on the budget and everything and i stopped and said well, how do you know it's right and he just looked at me with that appalled i mean what sort of moron am i de- <laughs> what sort of moron am i dealing with but yeah deep yeah. Uh, okay. So then you went uh, back to GE, if I remember right, and did uh, no, no, oh no, no. So that, you, then you I went. went you to, went to Home Depot. Then to, I went to Home Depot to work with the guy you had worked with at GE. Exactly. Uh, exactly right. For a period of time, um, I had ended up working for Welch, but for a period of time, I worked for uh, Bob Nardelli in the power systems business. He was running Home Depot because he lost the race to succeed Jack Welch. And he brought me into Home Depot to do what I had been doing for Jack Welch, which was M&A. And then at some point, the board said they'd had enough Nardelli and they asked you to be CEO. Right. Complete shock to everyone in the world, including myself. The board and Bob got to a disagreement. They asked me to be the CEO. I actually said to them, you need to take a day and think about this because <laughs> this isn't you need a retailer i didn't really i had not really i had no retail background uh, and i need to take a day to think about this and they obviously still offered me the job and i did it and it worked out pretty well how long it, were you there eight years as ceo and uh it did it, we had it was it was very tough timing because i took over january 2nd of 2007 oh, the housing just, market oh was but yeah just falling like a knife almost you could mark it to the day uh so we had two very two or three tough years really through 2009 tough years and then we turned and um it's been a great run since then so there are a lot of great lawyers who have been supreme court clerks many of them are really great at being lawyers because they refuse to delegate anything they have to know they have to control and know everything you cannot do that when you're the ceo of a large corporation how did you how did you make the adjustment so terror helped a lot <laughs> uh because i was in a job uh it's hard i don't want to waste your listeners time but i was in a job 
that was just exactly as you said. I, I really didn't worry about how, how do you run large groups of people. These were professional organizations that knew what they were in charge of doing. And now I'm in charge of, at the time, 350,000 associates. It now has 400,000. I went through a really intense, what does it mean to be a leader of a large organization? How do you do it? I had the good fortune to have worked for some people who had led large organizations. I asked them. I asked a lot of questions and did a lot of listening and stayed up a lot of nights and worked. So Home Depot went through a breach, yes, not, not unlike Equifax, but it cost you less in the yeah. end. Uh, um, tell me about that. How What was that like? How, how was that different from some of the other challenges that you faced uh, at Home Depot? So uh, a couple of things about it. First, it happened in terms of my sequencing, my succession. I retired from Home Depot in uh, January of 2015, but I announced in, I announced I was leaving in August and announced who my successor was. Uh, we had a board meeting in August that was announcing the whole succession process. At that board meeting, by coincidence, we spent a half a day with our audit committee going through cybersecurity. And depending on how you look at it, for good or ill, we actually laid out for the audit committee, here's where we think we are, and we think we're in pretty good shape, with the exception of, and then we called out where we thought we had a vulnerability, and then we went on. Two and a half weeks later, so the day after uh, Labor Day, early in the morning I get a call, and uh, because of Krebs, mm -hmm. there was a leak that there was some activity that seemed to be associated with Home Depot. The banks were... Not certain are, you know, there was a lot of skeptic, as you know, huge fog of war, what yes. the heck is happening. We had had the benefit of going through a lessons learned with Target and following and studying what we thought Target did wrong there. And we actually had a pretty effective tabletop exercise about what we were doing. We disclosed right off the bat, which was it caused a lot of anxiety because we had to keep disclosing as we right, learned say, more. No, more it's a little more than that. And a little yeah, more than that. Exactly. So I, I don't want to be critical of the Equifax situation because there are lots of complexities. But rather than trying to tie some bow on it, I called my board of directors within the first hour and a half. We made a public release and then continued to release as we knew more and more. We were very focused on every communication was about the customer mm -hmm. and how this impacted the customer and what the customer needed to do. And then we were very intentional about communicating with our banks because as a retailer, at the end, the pain that's felt for the customer whose data has been breached, at least in the credit world, is when your bank says, so sorry, that your, card doesn't your, work. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's so painful. Right. I've so been painful, through that. Yeah. So painful. So working with the banks, so the banks understood that we weren't going to be you know, posturing on this for litigation purposes, but wanted to cooperate with them. And as a result, uh, there are probably other reasons the world getting more used to breaches and things like that. But we had no discernible hit on sales. The worst moment was, so this we announced on Tuesday after Labor Day, 2014, that Wednesday night, I had to do an analyst dinner in New York with Goldman Sachs. I go into the dinner, you know, 40 analysts around the table. We've announced the breach, so they know something's going on. I And uh, the way retail is, you get your sales hourly. Right. You know, mm -hmm. it's a horrible curse. So you, I'm looking at my sales before I go into this dinner, and it shows sales is down 35%. Oof. And I am thinking, for me, end of Western civilization, yeah. this is just a nightmare. And do you have to say that to the analyst? No, the no, analyst? no, 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 no. no. Okay. I go in, and it's, you know. You've got, you've got a set of talking points. I, 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 I'm doing my best to appear very calm and collected and everything's under control while inside I just, every internal organ is melting away. Very difficult evening and then wake up in the morning and find out there was an IT glitch and then in fact sales were up, you know, whatever percent. <laughs> <laughs> so other than that uh, dramatically uh, stomach churning moment, most of it, I mean, there were lots of decisions and lots of difficulties and we learned a lot about 
you know, how these events happen and how confusing they are yeah. and how difficult they are to get a handle on. But I do think, I, I mean, I, I unfortunately uh, get a lot of opportunities to talk to companies about how they respond to breaches. And the dominant theme is, you know, just focus on your customer. Yeah. yeah. And disclose. Uh, when in doubt. And, and disclose what you uh, talk about the known unknowns right. about that. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Exactly. Talk about the known unknowns. Be as transparent as you can be. It was there were lots of learnings and surprises. I was very surprised, frankly, and it's probably a topic now that I'm going to listen consistently to this podcast, it's probably a topic to cover. But I was surprised at how unhelpful the government was. Yeah. So I would have thought, you know, this was not an insignificant right. attack on, you know, a major U.S. business. And I'm sure there are reasons behind that. I'm sure there are reasons why the FBI isn't telling you here's what's going on. But that was a surprise. So I the, didn't the, feel like a coordinated sense of a front right. from our country that this was happening. So I, the, the, the short answer, especially in 2014, is they didn't really know. Yeah. They, they know very little more than you can tell them or your security guys can yeah. tell them. Uh, they're a little better now. DHS has taken on the responsibility of helping people recover from these things, uh, but all of them suffer from a talent uh, drain uh, that's kind yeah, of constant. has to be. has to be. It must be so difficult to keep people who have talents because they're, they are uh, so in demand. I, was, I mean, another comment on your podcast, all of those issues are issues discussed at every board meeting in every company around around this country, anyways, I'm sure, I'm sure the world. So- you left Home Depot and you started the Crazy Good Turns podcast. Yeah. Uh, How did you come to do that? Uh, one of the lessons, so it goes back to, you know, what, what, what did I learn as a lawyer running a large group of people? One of the lessons from that was that, you know, there's a business saying that you get what you measure. I have a saying you get what you celebrate, mm -hmm. that people learn what an organization wants by watching who the organization celebrates and what's the story around that celebration. So the guy who started this podcast with me, he was in charge of that communication process for the company. And I think it's an enormously powerful vehicle of putting out stories, positive stories. So we said, what are we going to do together? We did this. Um, we decided to do the Crazy Good Turns podcast, recognizing people who, as you say, do exceptionally good things for others. And uh, he, unfortunately, he, if you listen to any of the podcasts, he did the first three seasons. And then, unfortunately, his wife got cancer and he sort of stepped back from it for a while. But it's been fascinating. It's been so interesting. Yeah. I, you, you, you said this to me a couple of times about running at a Home Depot and the amount of time you spent Walking around the stores, celebrating people who right. had done re had provided really good service yeah. to the customer. That's it was every Sunday. I mean, there are many, I have many examples of this, but every Sunday I would write around two hundred handwritten notes to hourly associates who had, had. We had a whole system. If you were a store, an associate did something great for customer service. You sent those examples into your district. Your district sent them to the region. The region sent them all to me. And I would write these notes saying, Dear Joe or Jane, thank you very much, and give specifics around what we were thanking them for. And people care about that stuff. They yeah. really care. And one of my favorite stories is having started this about two or three months into it, I'm walking in a store and an associate comes up to me and says, would you mind writing that note to me again? He said, you wrote a very nice note. Would you mind writing it to me again? And I said, yeah, no problem. Why? And he said, well, I got the note and we were looking at it. I was looking at it with my friends and we were all convinced it had to be RoboPen. So we put it under water and it ran and I destroyed the note. <laughs> would, you, would you write another note? <laughs> so, so my um, – it's, it's – you need to – you need to set – you need to express to people – not through memos, but through stories, what it is that are your expectations within the organization. And you need to celebrate those folks and you need to um, invest into them through your celebration. So. so how did you decide to spend your time after Home Depot celebrating good turns? So this was, it was part of that same, I, first off, I'm, I have a theory on retirement. So I, I'm retired 
and I'm way less anxious than I ever was in my life. And it's a great thing for all of your listeners who are close. It's a good thing to get to. And I had a theory that I was going to spend a third of my time on business stuff, a third of my time on personal stuff, and a third of my time on giving back. Mm -hmm. The third of my time, it, it's, it's the business stuff is easy. That's what you lean into, whether yep. it's law, whatever it is, that's what you lean into. Personal is your family and friends. The giving back was actually has proven to be way more difficult than I anticipated in understanding how to do that effectively, what are interests, because it's got to kind of get it, you. Yeah, it has to be something that's uh, right. in, unique to, not right. unique, but that you feel personally. Personally. And so the Crazy Good Turns, and one of the things I like about Crazy Good Turns is, uh, first, I love the stories, and the people are amazing. But also, when I think about my own philanthropy and people I want to interact with, I come away from most of those going, in fact, you know, 90% of them going, oh, my God, this is, um, I mean, first I feel, you know, like a little peanut that I'm not doing anything yeah. more significant. But you go, oh, my God, and I need to support these people. I need to figure out a way to help these people. And, you know, the most direct and crazy good turns is broadcasting what they accomplish, but also there's financial and introducing them to other people and things like that. But it's it's an extraordinary world out there of people who are doing, you just think, I couldn't. Yeah. It wouldn't occur to me to do that. So I, if you were thinking about the use of technology for- Such uh, a great the, theme. Yeah. It is such a great theme. So 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 I'll put in a first plug on the crazy, on the episode that's going now. Uh, we interview a guy named Dan Pallotta. Dan has one of the top 15 TED Talks mm -hmm. of all time and sort of explains why charity, you know, why there aren't, I think his data is, the data is something like since 2000, there have been 1,500 charities that have been created that have gotten over $50 million. Wow. In that same span of time, there have been over, you know, 500,000 for-profits. What is it that keeps charities below scale? Why, why don't charities that are solving such big problems get more scale? The smartest ones of them turn to technology mm -hmm. because technology gives you a way in a relatively cost-effective way of connecting to people and creating virtual groups of like-minded folks. And there are many, many examples of it. One, again, putting in a plug for, there's a wonderful woman, Nancy Lublin, who does a, something called Crisis Text Line, which is all digital. And it all, you know, it's, it's not just about how you help people who are in crisis, but it's gathering data, being able to do some uh, algorithms, predictive algorithms around what sort of a first markers of people getting into trouble. And she just had, I mean, so full of passion. She says, well, what the hell? If you know what you're doing on technology, why are you figuring out how to get the Chinese food delivered within 10 hours instead of 15? And you're not doing something to really help the world. There are a lot of people who okay. are using technology. Yeah, no, that's the, uh, it is interesting uh, uh, that that there is that skepticism. You know, I, a part of it is, you know, you start out uh, and you have no money because right. uh, nobody has money when they're 22. And you develop habits about how much you can give yep. and, uh, uh, and to, to avoid giving more than that, you develop these defensive measures. Yep. Uh, and then you get to 60 or 65 or 70 and you say, yeah, actually, I have enough. Right? <laughs> uh, uh, but breaking that habit yep. that's, that's skeptical about everything yep. is really uh, difficult. It's very tough, but I also think, I mean, I do think technology is one of the great keys because, and this is just my own personal opinion, there are so many in the charitable world, there are so many intermediaries standing between us and the need and sort of explaining the need, doing the dinner where they put the poor yep. person up and they raise money at the tables and stuff like that versus Direct action, just delivering, just yeah. delivering. I mean, right? So there, there, are, there's a whole theory that says just give poor people money, right? <laughs> right. You know, and they will, they will know what to do with it. They'll much better than you will. Ex exactly. And even if you are short of that, there's so much that you can do that is direct now. That I think, I mean, it's it's one of the it's 
one of the walls that can be broken down through technology and improve efficiency immensely. And as a, as a donor, get more reinforcement for your generosity. So you actually see the results of your generosity, again, rather than right. with a little annual report that shows you gave whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. So I, I, I do think that, um, as you said earlier, it's people want stories. They yeah. want narratives. They, they, they grasp those, and, yeah. and that shapes their sense of who they are. Yeah. And, uh, and yet some of the charities that are most effective in terms of saving lives, like giving people um, a repellent uh, in, uh, impregnated right. uh, mosquito nets, right. right, which which save an enormous number of lives from right. malaria. But you know, after you've said, okay, we we gave away twice as many uh, mosquito nets as last year, uh, uh, there's there isn't the same kind of story. So finding a way to use the technology to pull stories yep. out of effective uh, charity is is one of the challenges pull stories pull stories and i believe develop community of interest communities of interest so i mean i i give this example in a church world uh all the time which is a member of a church why don't i know why isn't there a next door for my mm -hmm. church community if i'm feeling generous and someone's in need wouldn't it be someone who's part of that community and right now, I don't even know that. Yeah. I don't think that's going to exist five to ten years from now. People are going to figure that out. People are going to figure out that actually giving direct access both to the stories and the impact is going to make a big deal. Yeah. No, that's a, that's, that's, that's a startup that could, uh, could sustain itself uh, and do a lot of good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, well – uh, Frank, it's it's terrific to see no. you after all these years uh, and to spend some time celebrating Justice Stevens' uh, yeah. legacy, uh, his personal legacy, uh, uh, and uh, his tolerance of both of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was, well said. Uh, there were, there well were, said. There were three clerks our year, uh, and the year after that, he went to two. We've always believed that's that a comment on us. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> no uh, doubt. If that's all I'm getting out yeah. of this, I only need two of them hanging around the office. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, thank you, Stuart. Thanks, uh, uh, Frank. That was terrific. Uh, uh, thanks also to Matthew Hyman, Gus Horowitz, uh, and uh, Nick Weaver for joining me in episode 273 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, uh, if you uh, suggest a guest, uh, we will give you a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, which I'm giving to Frank right now. Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. You can follow me on Twitter if you want to see these stories before they uh, – uh, get aired. Uh, please do leave us a, a rating. That that uh, makes a big difference to uh, people being able to find the show. Uh, uh, and coming up, August hiatus. We're going to take the month of August off. I'm going uh, hiking in the Maritime Alps. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Mike Beaver, our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy. Thank you.